Welcome to Creative Welly episode 26. It's great to be back in 2022. You're all very welcome. In this episode, I get to chat to Glenis Hria Philip Barbara, who's the Assistant Māori Commissioner for Children here in New Zealand, Aotearoa, and Sam Trubridge, a Director, Designer and Performance Arcade. Big thank you to John O'Tucker from Empire Films, who's our video producer. You're obviously listening to the audio version of the video podcast. Check out the video, it's amazing. Anyway, you're very welcome to listen to this as well. And also a big shout out to David Hamilton over at Flash Dog Studios for hosting us. And without further ado, please enjoy this Creative Welly episode 26. Can you give me a colour, please? I think I pink. Pink. P-I-N-K. Could you give me a number? Five. Five. One, two, three, four, five. I'm going to choose a number. I'm going to go with seven. Okay, so the question behind number seven. Great one. Just to kick us off, to start us the chat in, and then we'll go off on one, right? The question is, what is your greatest regret? What is your greatest regret? Starting with a tough one. (laughs) It could be fun or it could be... Just it's going to make us a little more vulnerable. And yeah, it does, yeah. doesn't it? Straight away, I'm opening up because I know mine. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, oh, so vulnerable. Bad mind. Shall I go first? Because I, I know one. mine. But uh, if you want. Um, yeah. It, the thing that I often remember and I feel bad about, it's maybe trivial, but it's the one that keeps coming to mind, is um, running auditions for one of my early shows I did in Auckland and my brother was auditioning and when I got to do the sort of one on the way they each get to present their thing I forgot him um, because he was sort of part of the family so I guess I just kind of right um, was so focused on all the people who I didn't know and mm. then I forgot to actually kind of because everybody got one one at a time to stand up and and audition their piece and you know we're all part of a community that he was part of as well and I forgot him I got it did it later on but I always feel bad about that little Sort of Blessing. very easy oversight. Of course. How old were you around this? Time? I was about twenty-one. Right. Yeah. Okay. But I know that sometimes just comes up, and it's just like, oh, I feel bad about that. So that's I missed. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Mine is a bit. It's family orientated. Yeah. Mine is not going to see my grandfather or granddad before he died, uh, but I was like six. Seven, something like that in my head. I can't really remember. I know I was a little, little kid. And my mum was saying, my dad's been taken into hospital. He's all right. He's had a little bit of a heart attack, but he's fine. So we're just going to go down and see him. Do you want to come? And I was like, can I go out and play? Because I didn't have no concept of that. It was the first ever grand, uh, first, yeah, I think he was the first one to go. But anyway, I just remember now looking back on it. I was like, ah, oh, what a missed opportunity. Because he died the following day. Mm. And that was my last chance to see him. And by the way, when my mum came back, she did regale stories. So he's fine. He's doing forward rolls on the on the 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 the, the, the kind of uh, in the ward to prove that he's all right and wants to go home. So I'm like, yeah. You know, anyway, it was that moment in time where you do look back and go, that's smarts. That's mm. smarts a little. But I was a kid. I was a wee kid, right? What do I know? But that's mine. Mm. I know. A bit sad. We're getting sad. How about you guys? Mine is, um, I suppose my, my greatest regret is the time that it takes to, to just grow up and realise the importance of kindness, particularly within 
family relationships. I remember my youngest sister telling me years later that when I was a teenager, I told her that when she sang, she sounded like a choked frog. (laughs) And actually that throwaway comment, mean, actually stopped her from singing for a really, really long time in front of anybody. And I never noticed and she never said anything for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And when I think about that now and how it stifled that creative, mm-hmm. beautiful creative capacity that she has. Mm. Yeah, that's a huge regret, just how we're wired to be mean as teenagers. I think if I was writing a letter to my teenage self, I'd right. be telling myself, the words you speak have power, be kind. Mm. Mm. They're definitely going into other, other teenage ears as well. Mm. Right, and the power that we've heard, Definitely. yeah, especially siblings, especially as the older sister. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. to hold yeah. that space. Oh, yeah, just to realize that you know what you say actually has yeah. power with your younger siblings. How many siblings do you have? Two, in the two sisters. There's, just, there's two girls. sisters, so there's three girls. Yes, we are the three right. girls. Okay, so you're the top of the three girls. Okay, I'm the oldest, yeah, I wouldn't say the top. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating, they're pretty powerful characters, my sisters. I can imagine, for sure. And you got one brother or two Just brothers? one brother, yeah. You're one brother. And you're the baby? No, I'm the big brother. You're the big so brother as well. Once again, I think we all share the same kind of regrets about things we did when we weren't aware of yeah. um, the responsibility we have through the things we say or do. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I got two older brothers, so I'm the baby, so I'm always interested where people are. Oh. And they remind me I'll always be the baby, you know, always <laughs> Yeah, it's just fine, but it's fascinating, the dynamics of siblings. Mm. I'm really lucky, though. I'm still kind of, in inverted commas, close to them, you know, as best as we can because we're all over the place. And mm. But, uh, yeah, are, are you the same with your brothers and sisters? And yeah, we're you all say close. say you're still... Yeah, we're all close and we all have children and all of our children are close. And Great. We like hanging out together, so, yeah, but they do have me on about those years from time to time. Quite right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think the older you get, the more important those connections are. Like, mm. yeah, none of our regrets are sort of professional. Mm. Um, they're all about our connection with, with whānau. And, yeah, good point. And, um, yeah, it's because, yeah, the older you get, you realise just how important those are. Yeah. My brother lives most of the time overseas, and we still have a really strong connection. We still do a lot together creatively and, yeah. and um, spend time together regularly, yeah. Mm. In terms of, like where you find yourself professionally, you mentioned mm. professionalism, compared to your siblings, is there some, because I'm very different to my brothers, mm-hmm. like one of them's a policeman and have been for the last 10, 15, 20 years, something like that. The other one is a social market researcher, nerd slash genius, you know, uh, and I'm more in the creative realm, I would say. So we're all very different. You know, how, how do you find where you slot yourself in to commonalities or differences with your siblings? It's very easy for me to answer that question because my brother and I just share a sort of connection with the ocean and the sea. Mm. Like we were brought up on a boat, um, so it's our space where we connect and I go and help him with his freediving stuff in Mm. the Bahamas often to sort of, because I love an excuse to go there, but also to help him with what he's doing and and, and equally, he is uh, featured in some of the artworks I've done and helped realise them. Oh, and they're always in the ocean, always. On, so it's the, it's the sea which kind of connects us, I think. Wonderful. Yeah. 
being brought, I just want to linger if that's right, because mm. being brought up on a boat mm. would be quite a specific and unique experience, I would imagine, when you're talking to other people. Not a lot of people go, oh, yeah, I, I did that. <laughs> a few in New Zealand, funny enough. Right, More okay. than New Zealand and elsewhere. Mm. But, yeah, it is a, a really kind of um, defining kind of background to have and a really sort of, for want of a better word, grounding experience. Mm. Yeah. What kind of a boat? A sailboat. Oh. Yeah. My parents bought the boat in, well, we, I was born in the UK, mm. so they bought a boat um, sort of during the, eight, sort of the end of the 70s because um, they were seeing just sort of where things are going with Margaret Thatcher's mm. kind of um, time in the UK. And there was a lot of fear and uncertainty and also just they were cold and they wanted to get somewhere warm. So they sold everything they had and risked it all on buying this boat, which then they sailed around the world, planned on getting back, going back to the UK, but arrived in, in Aotearoa and just loved it here and just stayed and never actually continued the journey at that point. So how, how old were you two? Um, we, when we left, my brother was like one, I think, and oh. I was about three or four. So we spent our childhood on a boat and they sold the boat when we were just starting to enter our teenage years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That is bonkers, is it? That's amazing. It's an experience, yeah. right? You must have stopped off many places and yeah. maybe stayed a while in some places more than others, or did you...? Yeah, we went to school in a few places along right. the way where my parents needed to sort of, like, work or, or just pause for a while and save money. Yeah. So, yeah, I went to school for a year and a half in um, the Caribbean and then also a year and a half in Tahiti. Um, wow. So, yeah, got to live in those places and get to know mm. people in those places as well. Yeah. But also just living on the ocean makes you vulnerable all of the time you know, mm. to the elements, to the ocean itself, mm. to the weather, mm. you know, to all of the changes around you. I mean, it would have been an incredible experience as young kids to just understand how to navigate yourself on a boat, mm. on the ocean, you know, in, in that way. It sounds like an incredible grounding experience and so it makes sense for me about you saying, you know, the ocean is our connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we are sort of so at home in that space of change and and volatility Mm. Mm. um, so much that we kind of, yeah, continue to seek it out because it enriches, you know, we need to be close to it. Mm. Lived for a few years in London and just being surrounded by architecture was just, I felt very sort of separated from from that that place. Must be really kind of imposing, that experience, because London is so hemmed in, crammed in. Yeah. Uh, but not to deconstruct you, but I would imagine like the idea of adventure mm. that you have, not just from your DNA, from your parents, because they're obviously adventurers themselves to do all that, mm. but also then to have the experiential experience mm. that you've had, mm. you've got a double layer of adventure. And like you say, you seek out, you know, kind of those odd little spaces that most people probably wouldn't enjoy. That's it. Yeah, I think that's everything. Is yeah, why I love living in Wellington is there's always adventure here. Yeah. yeah, and weather. Yeah, <laughs> and weather. Yeah, yeah. I don't Definitely know about you, and I, but I like the weather. <laughs> Do you? Yes, because it's weather. It's supposed to be like that. Right. Not supposed to be one thing. Mm. That's my kind of. But I, you know, in the valleys of South Wales, that's what we have. We have weather. Mm. <laughs> I'm you loving know. our summer. The summer, by the way. Just mm-hmm. so yeah, fair one. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Mm. But yeah, I, I do love the, the atmosphere that we have here, the weather, mm. and just watching the elements always moving. Yeah. My niece came down to Wellington for the first time 
this summer and she just was in our apartment looking out and she just said, the sky is moving. The sky <laughs> is moving. And she was just trying to get everybody to sort of look out the window and she was really alarmed by this because she'd never seen the weather change that fast. Yeah, mm. Mm. of course. Yeah. Oh, sweet of her. <laughs> yeah. Good southerly stuff. rolling in, was it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, racing across. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Fair. Sorry, we were lingering, but I mm. wanted you to have space to react to what we were... Because we lingered on growing up on a boat. Yeah, but there's I th- a commonality like between commonality. Yeah, you and your siblings, huh? Yeah. Yeah, so I come from a family of introverts. So the fact that I even do this kind of stuff and like speaking to large groups of people and mm. enjoy... Um, talking to a crowd is mm. unusual so I am the oddball You're in my final I am the ah. black sheep and I wear the t-shirt with pride <laughs> yeah so I am quite unusual and quite a lot of what I've done over my professional career and even my interests as a teenager were a little bit alarming to my very um quiet introverted family okay mm. so I'm fascinating. a bit of a strange fish in my family but and how did that manifest early on Um, Theatre, you know, auditioning for roles in school plays Mm -hmm. and, you know, joining a band early in life and just kind of getting out there and hitting the boards and really enjoying it as a young person. My, you know, poor mum and dad would come along to performances with, you know, three parts trepidation and (laughs) one part pride thinking, oh God, is she going to be okay? Was it like, how, how's she doing that? Because yeah. I can't see myself doing yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very much um, been mine and my mother's conversations over years. Fascinating, right? Yeah. And then, of course, through my professional career, just even more yeah. terrifying. So, yeah, yeah but I enjoy it. Um, you know, I, I like running towards problems. I like mm. seeking out the spaces where we find solutions by running toward the problem to understand it better. So, a bit odd in that respect, and I love change. Um, yeah, I've lived through just by virtue of the time that we're living in mm. in Aotearoa. There's been a lot of change over mm. all of the decades of my pro- professional career, and mm. um, yeah, lots of rich learnings available too. So, That's yeah. Mm. And how do your family feel about it now? Well, they just kind of roll their eyes a bit, I think. Now, yeah. um, when I announce whatever the next thing is mm-hmm. um, that we're about to embark on. Um, but yeah, you know, we all adjust as we kind of grow and get older, as you say. Mm-hmm. And my parents are no longer surprised by anything that I do. Mm-hmm. I think I popped up in the Australian Women's Weekly and I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> she goes. <laughs> That's kind of nice now. They resigned to the idea of, yep, she, she's just, she always does weird, wonderful things. Yeah, yeah. But weird, but loud, but outspoken. Yeah, but I enjoy it. So what's, what's nice is you pair have a connection which we, you didn't overlap, but we both worked on TEDx Wellington together or mm. in and around. Mm. Sam was involved in 2014, oh. TEDx Wellington, as the production manager, let's just call it that, and you really helped us cement ourselves in the kind of Wellington scene here. You helped us do it properly. That's mm. what I, I think you did for us. Sorry. But that's what I thought. Anyway, you really helped us craft a delicate experience that was really true to what we were trying to do. Mm. So that was it. And then obviously you spoke in 2016, mm. which was our little year break. And then Glennis was involved as a speaker and got that whole experience of fun. being there and what we did with the Park Road Poets experience. Mm. But you've had that commonality, but you didn't overlap, which is a shame. Because I think you'd, 
yeah, you're interesting enough people that you have interesting things. But how would you define what you do now? So I know you in that realm, but I've also known you doing other things. But for those who don't know you, how would you describe what you do, but more importantly, why you do what you do now? Yeah. Mm. Glennis, do you want to start? Well, I mean, essentially, my job now is to advocate for New Zealand's 1.2 million children. Um, that's my day job. Um, and as an advocate, as Assistant Māori Commissioner for Children, it's our job to keep an eye on the horizon, to watch what's happening, to keep an eye on bills going through the house, to keep an eye on research and new learnings, mm. to hear from children directly mm. on matters that affect them, um, to consider how the COVID response, for example, is landing yeah. for children and young people across the country, to advise government, um, mm. to influence. We work a lot with the media. So, yeah, it's a, I'm an advocate these days, which sits perfectly with the experience I've had so far, mm. but also my real passion about the future of Aotearoa. That's kind of really where I've been thinking a lot about what needs to change and mm. what we can do to be a part of creating a, a positive and constructive pathway toward that change. Mm. Mm. I think there's been a lot of learning in Aotearoa in the past So this years. is a brand new role, as I understand it, it's in terms of it hasn't just, existed before. No, so right? it was developed, um, yeah, so it was created mm. um, because the then Children's Commissioner, Judge Andrew Beecroft, wanted mm. to explore Tetiriti partnership practically. Mm. So he wanted to understand what it is to share power with Māori mm. in the context of his professional role gotcha. and then to think about what that the implementation of that Tetiriti framework might look like right. for the Office of the Children's Commissioner. So just a ch- tiny assignment on top of the advocacy. <laughs> yeah, but bold, right, and I would I, imagine, because I know some of his interviews he was saying, you know, I'm a Pakia 50-year-old white male who in a position of leadership and I shouldn't have this role. Or at least he wanted to create an avenue for conversation around, as I understood it, the treaty. He's 63, but we'll keep that to ourselves. Um, But he wanted to create space for Mm. mokopuna Māori to find their own voice and to actually do that by having an advocate who understands their lived experience, so, or at least can connect to their lived experience. Mm. So it's been great. I've been in there just over a year now. And it's been an absolute blast. have loved every minute of it. That's fantastic. Mm. So when you say about advocacy, that yep. was the, one of the first words you used to describe it. Um, I know you mentioned policy and advocation probably within the policy and, and bill realm. Yep. But how far does, how much is it reactive versus proactive? Because that's both, reactive. Both yeah. and an equal measure. So right. the office also has a role to monitor places of detention in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where young people are held. Mm. Um, So that is hugely proactive in Mm. terms of really understanding how their rights are upheld in those spaces, what Mm. kinds of issues they see, um, what their experience of these places is like, and to continually advocate for improvements Mm. in those spaces, all the way across to young people in any place you might find them or children in any place you might find them who want to find their voice on issues that matter to them. So we're lobbied a lot by young people who want to talk to us about climate change. Young people all over the country always want to talk to us about racism, whether we ask them about it or not. 
the voice that young people are finding around matters of social justice, which we've been working through and on in Aotearoa for a really long time, is, is really, really powerful. And their articulation of their experience is incredible. Incredible. So after the... Sorry, you were going to jump in. I speak too much. Go on. And I was, I was wondering how... Yeah, because it's fascinating to think that you you kind of create the future values for New Zealand in that space as well, mm, don't you? Mm. Do you have does that is that how it feels at all? Or? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know about create, but certainly explore and understand. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, what I'm really heartened by mm. is the commitment of young people to caring for each other, mm. as well as being cared for themselves. And that's come through really strongly in all of the work that we did in the past year. Mm. Young people talking to us about the right of young people to access an education and how important that is for them and mm. what they want to see changing in order to support those of their school community who don't have the resources or the means to participate as fully as they might. Mm. Those who are neurodiverse, those who have mm. learning disabilities or other disabilities that prevent them from fully accessing their education, their rights. So, I mean, we are engaging with young people all the time on things that matter to them, both formally and um, informally. We just get, we get mail. (laughs) It's almost like young people haven't been socialised out of that compassion we spoke about earlier, right? They have a huge amount of compassion for the other young people I have found in my work um, that... When you speak to adults, it's like they are socialised, like I say, out of it a little bit. Yeah. I've had other experiences, so it's more about them rather than the other. Mm. I don't know if that's similar to what you found is what I heard. Anyway. Definitely, particularly with uh, the, the mental health crisis that we're facing right. and that young people also yeah. talk to us about all the time. So mental health and racism are the two big things right. and climate change is, is a very close third mm. has been the kind of three key issues that young people are talking to us about all the time so mental health I think and their awareness of what it takes to be mentally well mm. uh, is what I, it's my theory around what's driving this you know beautiful explosion yeah. of values but then when we move around in Kohangareo and Kurakaupapa Māori and in Māori communities you find that those values are embedded in the DNA of yeah. the young people there. And so they are just, you know, practising the values of their ancestors mm-hmm. in a, in a time-honoured way, all things being equal and, and everything being OK. Um, but we find ourselves more and more turning to those um, Māori communities to understand how those values can be lived within the context of today's economy. It's tough out there. Mm-hmm. It's tough yeah. out there. Yeah. And so all of the inspo uh, that I'm seeing around the country mm. is coming from rangatahi-led programs and projects. I mean, mm. look at some of the COVID response in Auckland, for example, mm. the, you know, Get Dotted campaign and, mm. you know, the young people down in South Auckland, the Bubblegum Crew, mm. you know, really standing up to support their community with vaccination and making good choices. Like, it's just inspiring. And do you think that... Children have always been this politically engaged? Or do you think it's like more so at the moment these days? It's a really good question. I think in Aotearoa we've been a little bit slow to consider the validity of children's voices. Mm. But now that we're there, mm. oh, we're there, boots and all, right mm. up to our ears. I mean, I know for me as a young person growing up 
our grandparents considered the things that we had to say were important and engaged us in conversation yeah. about stuff that mattered all the time. So I grew up thinking that that's just how everybody... Mm. We missed the seen and not heard memo in our mm. whānau. Yeah. Um, but, you know, more and more I'm seeing young people just bringing those values forward powerfully in their families and communities and then seeking a voice, you know, seeking an opportunity or a platform mm. to give voice to that. I think social media's got a role to play here as yeah. well because it is a freely available platform, you know, rightly or wrongly, mm. that is holding space um, for mm. people to find their voices and to practice mm. too what that experience is like. Yeah, and see the impact of it in some mm. way. I'm reminded of uh, one of my first careers was in local authorities, mm. uh, where I started in leisure development and then I transitioned over to youth work mm. um, and did a lot around, you know, on the streets and doing some cool, funky arts and uh, mm. kind of creative projects with young people, giving them voice, mm. and then became the first ever corporate youth officer in a local government and first ever in the, in the UK, so road policy and stuff like that. And all the way through it was that, okay, I don't have to convince young people about their need and want to participate fully in this thing that we call society. Mm. I just got to convince the grown-ups that they can be heard. And not only that, they have a, a, a great offering. They can bring themselves to the table fully. Mm. It's not just they, they want a swimming pool. That's it, right? Or a new park. Or no, they, they're talking about po- politics and mm. uh, equity back mm. then and, and inclusion and things mm. like that. Mm. Um, so I'm, it's fascinating that we've got to the point where we still need new or similar or old, I don't know what to call it, but we still need advocacy for this stuff. They're part of the whole society. They should be part of the whole discussion, right? Yes, including you know, exercising the right to, the right to vote from age yeah, 16. That's a big one, right? In my view, but... You know, that's a Do you whole think other down to 16 or would you go lower? Well, I'd, I'd start with 16 mm. and learn as we go. For sure, yeah. I think there are a number of young people disengaged from the formal political process. If we were to focus on 16-year-olds and their cohort, mm. I think we would begin to shift some of the systems that would enable more and more yeah. young people to participate. So I think we're focused at the top end of the age band, in terms of our formal political processes, would be great to be focused down the other end as well. Because New Zealand's part of the UN uh, Rights of the Child. Certainly are. So Article 21. Fully signed up. Fully signed up, which gives, again, that politically we have to advocate for young people, but also give them the right to certain liberties, shall we say, and access to education and protection and blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah. And only one country in the world didn't sign up, America or something like that, a couple of them. Mm. But America wasn't, fascinatingly, Mm. signed up. But in terms of then how we are seeing your office, in inverted commas, impact on the political approach, what needs to change politically for this to be more embedded in, in terms of not just, I, I mean, votes, but just generally, like, advocacy and discussion bill formations even to make it accessible to be read because I read some of them I don't even know I'm I'm not saying the kids are cleverer or dumber I mean it's just like it's not very accessible right so what would you like to be seen and advocate for in the political process well it's interesting you ask because right now there's a bill going through the house that proposes changes to the legislation that governs the way that we operate as the office of the children's commissioner and uh, young people 
we've we've asked uh, for young people to be given an opportunity to comment on the bill. Exactly. Um, but the time frame didn't allow uh, for young people to have that opportunity. The chance to comment closed uh, last week, and of course everyone's still out on school holidays. So we're mm. in 2022, still working hard to create those opportunities. So something in the administrative settings and the planning around how we put bills through the House, how we consider policy formation needs Mm. to shift. There needs to be a mindset shift in terms of our understanding of the inherent value of children and young people participating in policy and lawmaking in this country. If we can get that mindset shift, I think Mm. we'll be there, um, we'll be there and we'll get the necessary momentum. Mm. But for young people not to have had the opportunity to comment on what's happening for us is... Yeah, bit on the nose. It's bit on the nose in 2022. As a a teacher, I think I've noticed a change because when I came back to New Zealand from London in 2004, I started teaching at Massey University. Mm. And at that time, I remember myself and my colleagues lamenting the fact that none of our students were politically kind of engaged. We'd we'd sort of, there were issues that were sort of bubbling around and Mm. none of them seemed interested in it. But like I'm still teaching now, and, and now at Toifakari Aotearoa, um, the drama school, and the students are really active. They're lobbying, they're leading, they're, they're, mm. they're, they, are, they are campaigning with, you know, to, to sort of um, push different kind of issues in the school in a way which we were trying to get the students to do like 10, 15 years before that. So I think that somehow something is is shifting because, yeah, we're getting that effect. Well, back in the mid-90s, you remember universities in this country moved on making membership of student councils entirely voluntary. So Mm. it went from being compulsory to entirely voluntary. And at the same time, the school year was shifted from full year to semesterised. So that's where I saw that shift of, you know, people just became time poor. Right. almost overnight. I mean, I was at Massey in the 90s mm. and taught at Massey in the early 2000s, so mm. kind of saw the shift mm-hmm. from when I was there as a student through to the mm. through to the 2000s, just removing the resources and the space to mm. give students time to participate mm. and engage and do all of those things actually led to the outcome that you're just describing. So it was like a system burden, almost like... But was it intentional or was it just an outcome of something that was just... Well, who can say? I mean, all of us right. lobbying at the time, you know, screamed that it was intentional. Mm. Um, but, you know, as we've moved to become more efficient mm. with the dollar, mm. um, we've, I think we've got a little bit mixed up in terms of the value of social cohesion mm. and other opportunities for students to build those skills, to learn mm. how to lobby, mm-hmm. to learn how to ask for things, to learn how to participate in processes I mean, that's valuable mm. for their working lives, for their community lives mm. and everything else. That's what learning was about. But all of those kind of soft things that you got as a bonus extra as mm. a university student yeah. um, kind of got rolled up in a bit of a ball in the 90s and, and set aside. So yeah. I'm really pleased to hear that it's come back. That's great. Mm. That's nice, yeah. Mm. We'll definitely come back to more of that, but I wanted to throw that question which Glennis asked, if you remember, answered, sorry. How would you describe what you do, but more importantly, why do you do? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> but we'll come back around to this. Um, what I do, I mean, I work in the arts in, in a very broad range of disciplines. 
as a performance designer. That's the term I would prefer to use if everybody understood it. Um, <laughs> often I have to use the term director or designer, mm -hmm. but it's where we where um, I'm very conscious in my work of the effect that, that the, the contexts and scenarios have on the way people experience what I'm trying to present. Gotcha. Um, and performance is something which we all do, so it's not just relevant to theatre or, mm. or dance or something. It's, it's, there's all these other spaces where we, we play roles and wear costumes and put on masks. And it's so some of my students have gone on to work in politics from time to time and also in other areas because there is the theatre and all mm. those things. Um, so I'm, why I do it is, is because it is political. I think there's a lovely crossover because you worked, you worked in theatre when you were younger and now you're working in, in, in politics. And I have always um, thought of art and especially sort of performance arts as a way of sort of experiencing things differently and reimagining the world and, um, and challenging the status quo with that. And that's why I do it, because it lets people see things differently or see things again um, and, and not take anything for granted and try to reimagine the world they live in through the lens of a particular work and what it's trying to say and what that artist's background is and what they're trying to say and explore. Yeah. Fascinating. So it's always terrible to ask an artist for a retrospective and a thematic one as well. But where would you put yourself in terms of the, the grand themes and narratives that you approach in your work? Is there a commonality when you look back about the work you produced or help other produce? Um, not so much. I guess the way I help other people produce their work would is also characterised by my own practice. So um, the commonality is, once again, uh, the ocean, the sea, um, because that's a space where I learned to play. Mm. Um, and so the first ever theatre production I did was at the YMCA Tepid Baths in Auckland. And it was The Tempest. And yeah. all the performances came in and out of the water and used that. And it was very much drawing. I mean, I never directed a show before, but my answer to that was that I know water. And so that was how mm. I kind of I, I worked the actors with how to engage with this material. Um, right through to what I do now, which is the Performance Arcade, which is due to open in a f about three weeks' time. Mm. It's an event on Wellington Waterfront. It's, it's in that very interesting boundary space between the sea and mm. its, all its changeable, volatile qualities, and in this ordered, organised space of the city. And it captures the qualities of both, like performance does. Performance is chaotic. Mm. And and uncertain, but it's also organised and structured, and it and it's just balances between those two environments and captures the energy of both. Um, and so the that's a place where I don't present my own works; I present other artists' works and help them find their voice. And I find it's a good place for that because it's a place where the audience, the public, go, and they suspend some kind of. Uh, energy that they have in the city of, of work, business, of avoiding cars, of navigating social places. And this is a space where things happen just a bit differently. Um, and so the artists that I bring there can, can make the most of that kind of environment and, and catch people unawares. It's not a space where people have decided to go and um, go to a gallery or a, or a theatre. They haven't decided to become an arts audience, but suddenly they see something which they just completely surprises them. And um, and they and they've 
already start to respond to it before they realise it's performance art, whatever that is. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's the commonality is this sort of liquid ocean space. Yeah. I never thought about the, the role of the, the ocean with performance arcade. But now you framed it, it's like, yeah, of Friday course. It's, it's a big ingredient. the round near Te Papa. Yeah. Yeah, but we've oh. done stuff at Friday Lagoon yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Because it is so immediate, it's right there, right? Mm. So, yeah. And it's public space, mm. which means anybody can be there, yeah. which I think changes the game. I mean, in yeah. terms of access to, you know, yeah. creative work, I think it's mm. really important that it's in the public domain. It's, yeah, it's amazing. So you, sorry, I was just going to pick up on one of the points you made about I don't present my own work, you said, but I curate kind of other artists. Yeah. I've always thought the act of curation is an act of creativity in it, into itself. Oh, yes. You know? So I'm always interested in how you go about the crea- curation process because obviously, especially in COVID times, we have mm. some constraints around bringing other people mm. back. But again, you, you approach that. Um, I, I'm just interested in your artistic approach to curation when it comes to something like the performance arcade, what's the process behind it? Um, it's very different from some, maybe some other curatorial processes. I've never been trained as a curator. Okay. Um, I trained in theatre and design, really. Mm. But um, I, it's much more responsive curation. I'm not trying to impose a thematic or a kaupapa on the presentation of the work until I've seen what the artists want to show. Okay, so and you if, wait. Yeah, I, I put a call out, and I try my best to get that call out to as many people as possible. So there's a bit of there's a bit of work there, which is curatorial as well. Mm-hmm. But I try and let everybody know that this is an opportunity to share your work and try to present examples that lets people see themselves in those works as well. And then we see what we get, and then we design the architecture of the arcade around that um, right. To best support the work, so this artist says that they want they don't want a shipping container. They just want to do something in dialogue with the water, and so we just make sure to sort of prepare uh, our plans to help support them and make mm-hmm. that safe or make that that the work legible. Um, so there's a whole process of really getting to know the artist's works and what their needs are, um, and that for me is the curation, um, and it produces the architecture of our so-called gallery or arcade or mm-hmm. Um, and it's different every year because of that, because sometimes we look at all the works and we're like, nobody wants to do stuff in shipping containers. Okay. Oh, right, yeah, which is your big thing. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a useful kind of piece, a tool, a bit yeah. of Lego, and it's fun. I mean, there's a bit of creativity there. Yeah. But, um, you know, some years that we had so many proposals for works all on the waterfront in different places, and so we went, okay, there'll be a few shipping containers, like we normally do, but we'll do this three-kilometre-long pink line, which oh, yeah, links that. all those experiences. Mm. And so people had stuff at the railway station um, and all the way around uh, in Oriental Bay. Mm. And then we got to tell other stories using that pink line, so we got to sort of um, have little narratives on it, so it became its own artwork. But that emerged from the needs of the artists and what mm. they were going through. And, yeah, that continues to kind of evolve the event. And this year, you got a specific theme of Karanga. Am yes. I saying that right? Yeah. Karanga, which is like a call to summons or to welcome. Yeah. Was that part of your call? Or what? I, I suppose, how did you come up with these themes as well in the first place? This is a sort of a, it's not printed on the program because we're, mm. we're trying to sort of really develop how we work with mana whenua. Mm. And so we wanted to, so we ran a series of wānanga over 2021 across the country to really kind of talk to artists in different communities 
and um, try and help them understand what the arcade was as an opportunity. Right. And, and that itself was a sort of process of calling um, the artists into the event and making the event um, welcoming. But we're, in, we're sort of starting a, a process of um, building a, an advisory panel um, that can help steer the creative sort of direction of the event. And, um, and on that panel is artists like Warren Maxwell, who's an amazing musician, um, uh, and he is helping us kind of with uh, sort of doing a keynote sort of presentation in the arcade. Mm. Um, but we're trying to find a, the right title for him to present that isn't just sort of a keynote. It's, we're trying to find different words mm. um, and ways to describe what we do because we just haven't found a word in Te Reo for performance art. I've had many suggestions, okay. but then somebody else say, oh, no, that's not the right word. Try <laughs> this. And so that's where we're at. We're in that space of welcoming in, and it's mm-hmm. sort of open-ended and uncertain. And, um, and so this year is that. It's just a sort of an open door mm. to events, like we're now in red level, so we're having to sort of shift the event itself and, yeah. and adapt it to this new paradigm. Mm-hmm. How long has it been going? This will be its 12th year. Wow, mm. Something good. Yeah. And where do you see it going? Um, continue to pursue what performance art is in Aotearoa. Mm. Um, it's such a Western kind of construction, but the arcade has a lot of the works that presented there. Some people may not identify it as performance art, but it's been shaped by the, mm. the unique kind of place that it's been in and the artists that we have here. Mm. And so I think... I'm just interested in pursuing that question, like what is performance art here? Is, is it irrelevant here or is it, is it transformed here in some way? And we don't know. And I'm trying to draw on the right people to help us find out. But it's, um, I mean, there's not many people who identify as performance artists in New Zealand. Right. And yeah, of course. Yeah. And so you're drawing from a pool already that's quite small. Or people who wanna... work as dance artists or define themselves as theatre yeah. artists. And, um, and so, yeah, we're just still trying to find out what it is here, like 12 years later. Mm. I mean, when we started, it was like, let's just try this thing, because a lot of artists who don't work in the gallery, don't work in the, or work in the gallery and the theatre, but don't feel at home in either space entirely. Gotcha. So yeah. creating a third space um, outside those that do what Glennis was saying, that engage with a very diverse audience that are not necessarily mm. arts audiences. And um, that experiment just continues, really. Yeah, that's kind of cool, right? That's exciting. Have you attended yet? Not yet. Maybe no, I haven't year? been in. I haven't been in Wellington long enough. I'll definitely not. be looking this year. Um, mm. But that's another lovely crossover. I chair the Baby Festival of Aotearoa Tairawhiti oh. Arts Festival, so I think we're only three years old. So, listening mm-hmm. to you talking about uh, the process by which you've deliberately inverted your curatorial power. Mm to defer to the artists and what they're bringing to you just makes mm. my little heart <laughs> sing with joy. It's a really powerful process. Mm. And if you're comfortable with the, uh, well, it can feel like chaos, hey. Mm. <laughs> but if you're comfortable yeah. with the uncertainty, yeah, it's just pure magic. Um, you can weave all of that together. Yeah, and it's, it's, nice, it's a nice shift from being a, an artist who's making their own work Mm. to then just going, okay, well, these are the works that other people are trying to make, how can you make it easy for them? Because mm. I've been on the other side of mm. having to present yeah. within festivals and, 
and I sort of know what I would like as an artist yeah. in those spaces. And it's that not letting the sort of the imprint of the curator kind of determine the work I make and mm. how I can fit my work into their mm. boxes, but just to let this open space occur. Mm. And, I mean, what's happening with the Tidafti Festival is mm. incredible. It's such an, mm. a, a progressive, incredible um, programme up there and the energy. Well, it's a yeah. celebration of people in place, and it sounds like yeah. that's what you're doing here. Mm-hmm. And as you're talking about performance art, you know, my mind is, is wandering across you know, all of the communities that I grew up in as a young Māori woman and thinking about, you know, the impromptu performance that happens in you know, people's backyards and in people's homes and yeah. in, you know, street corners. Some of the best stand-up I've ever seen has been in, you know, <laughs> garages, you know, when people are having informal celebrations. Yeah. Think about the Pacific communities in this country yeah. and the things that happen, you know, within the ebb and flow of their normal lives. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. For me as a Māori woman, creativity is part of our DNA. It's, mm. you know, it's something that you're called to do as part, one part cultural obligation and the other just pure survival in a community full of people who sing and dance and make speeches and, you know, and entertain and host and all of that beautiful energy mm. exists so powerfully in this country. It's really great to see these opportunities for people just growing from strength to strength. It's really cool, but, you know, there's so much to discover out there. There is. We're just starting on that in mm. New Zealand, I think, because, as I said, there's just not many people are aware of it as an art. Like, it's not taught it yeah. at high school level, and so people only become aware of it when they start at university. Mm. Um, so, yeah. it's, so a lot of our work now is to try to reach in that deep in mm. communities, so people start to see it as a way of expressing themselves. But the numbers of participants you have as well, not just the programme itself, is always rich and diverse and full. And I always look at it and go, oh, there's just so much stuff. I'll just wander past a few times and I mm. randomly take in whatever's there. Um, but the range as well, where you can go in, and I remember one installation where you go in and it was just like some soundscape stuff mm-hmm. with very little mm. description Mm-hmm. on what's going on, so it's left to you to experience it, and mm-hmm. however you experience it, you experience it, uh, to very destructive kind of fun stuff where they take your stuff and yeah. make some other stuff out of it, right through to just simple performances on a stage, right? Mm-hmm. But you get like, well, nearly 100,000 people at times passing through. Um, Our average yeah. numbers every year are usually somewhere between sort of sixty and 90,000. Which is no small... Most other performance art events don't have that many, but that's because we're kind of cheeky and we put the event in everyone's way so they trip over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and you know, most performance art events are in these sort of enclosures. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think when we do that, we realise it's such a great discipline because we all perform and, and live in bodies that are negotiating social, mm. architectural environments. And so we all relate to what this figure's doing because they kind of play with that in some yeah. way. Um, and, yeah, I think that's that's quite exciting. I mean, what's fashion if not performance art, you know? <laughs> I mean, yep. and you don't even have to go to a fashion show to actually experience mm. it. You could just go to any yeah. old event <laughs> and just sit back. I mean, how many New Zealanders talk about, you know, spending their Saturday evenings, people watching, mm. in, in a place close mm. to a theatre just, just to cafe. see, right? Mm. Yes. Classic yeah. cafe pastime. Yeah. Just mm. to see what people are wearing and, you know, how they're constructing their... Mm. Mm. Yeah, their wardrobes that day or evening. It's great stuff. 
So I'm, I'm also want to ask both of you about metrics for success. Mm. I'm fascinated by your work, obviously, but also from an artistic and creative perspective, sometimes the metrics aren't as obvious as, yeah, 90,000 people passing through. That's a good one. Mm. However, you probably wouldn't go there first mm. uh, for you and, and uh, when you're explaining the impact of these things. Like, I know you got a big sponsor on board. You've got, obviously, all the city council celebrating and creating that space for you and assisting you. But where do you go when you make the, uh, I suppose, try to talk about the impact on it? What metrics do you draw upon? Yeah. Um, I guess it's share a bit in common that way that there's this... Um, there's the sort of soft impact of everything that's unquantifiable the, the, that you may see generations later. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a subjective experience. It's an experience people take away themselves. It's sometimes you hear about through second-hand reporting or someone comes back to you of an experience, but it's, it's always kind of just out of your reach. And, yeah, 90,000 people is good, but it's a very sort of... Um, quantitative uh, kind of figure and yeah I'm always looking for people's own personal experience which rephrases the the things that we've been intending in the first place so something's been passed through that non-verbal experience that non-verbal relationship Mm. and it's and it's transformed into something in their own space which might add to my understanding of what we're doing or might uh but also confirm it or affirm it as well and open it up. Um, Lovely, yeah. And yeah, I think that's... So it's, it's really hard, but I pursue those, those kind of accounts. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Oh, gosh. Um, that kind of metric exists across quite a broad continuum. So at one level, um, sometimes our advocacy contributes towards a tangible shift in policy Mm. or law. Mm. So last year um, we managed to advocate for um, corrections to cease um, handcuffing pregnant women in jail uh, when they were about to give birth. So, yeah, wow, wow, um, in 2021. So sometimes it's it's that easy to see. Mm -hmm. And then at the other end, for me it's about the kind of growing confidence amongst children and young people mm. to find their voice and to trust themselves you know, to, to stand up and to speak or to write or to participate or to initiate something. Mm. So I'm always looking across the country to see what kind of rangatahi-led things are popping up, what young people are saying to us is important to them, mm the kind of um, no-smoking policy in cars, which became law, that was initiated by a group of school kids. Mm. Um, You know, there are all of these things that take years Mm. um, to bubble along and find their way. Mm. Part of our job is to remember where the seeds of those ideas come from Mm. and to keep them connected to the policy and legal Mm. process as it kind of trucks through, because these things can take a really long time. Yeah, curate the seeds. I love that. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> a bit of that. Yeah, it's a curatorial approach to the impact and yeah. draw the line backwards. Do you know that started there? Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
I mean, where I come from, we call that the whakapapa approach. Yeah. Understanding the whakapapa of things, where they come from. Yeah. Where the idea was first heard or sparked and who carried it, where and what happened to it next, and then who mm. carried it the next part of the way, and then who championed it in the house and, you know, like just, yeah, tracking that journey through. Mm. I mean, it's our policy team just lives to yeah. do that work. Yeah, just really, really good people who imagine. love it when kids and young people get a win. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You said 1.2 million uh, children in New Zealand. Yeah, so that's... well, almost 1.2, I think 1.16 or... Yeah, the number's shifting a bit with... Um, so it's close to a quarter of... Yeah, it's uh, nearly a quarter of the population. How, is it children and young chunk. people or...? Under 18. So we... Thank you. Our, our amber is under 18. Yeah. Right, so you go right away down, though? Yep. All right, OK. Yeah. We're interested in the first 1,000 days. We're interested yeah. in maternity services, obviously, because right, yeah. that determines the quality mm. of life that a mm. young pepe is likely to experience, so... We look across that. Yeah, that and then education program. is obviously the biggest Education's kind huge. of influence, I suppose. Child poverty is a massive concern. Yeah. We've initiated yeah. law and policy out of our tiny little office around child poverty yeah. over the years. So, yeah. That's fascinating from a perspective then when you start to align what we do here in this country compared to other nations in the world and try to see if there's anything we can learn from them. Is there anything like that that you've been doing, looking outside so you can bring in and go, look, this is how they did it. This is, I'm thinking about some of the Swedish uh, um, approaches to giving cots and you get a box from the state with beautiful mm. things in when you have, first have a baby, the first mm. baby, you have these mm. beautiful things that just welcome mm. that, that little new life and mm. as a little human but age you as well as a parent mm, mm. is there anything like that you look at kind of globally yeah, and go well, we could be doing that constantly looking at what's happening right. around the world and equally the world is looking at us as yeah. Aotearoa they are particularly interested in how we bring te tiriti or waitangi to life mm. in this country and kind of work that relationship between you know both parties to the to that document and make it real I mean indigenous rights Indigenous lives is a huge focus um, globally at the moment. And so, yeah, the world's watching us to see what we do to make the future a better place for the young people who are with us now and still to come. Because, yeah, we respect the precedents that we have here and and need that kind of precedent as well, don't they? Sadly, some nations think we are the nirvana. (laughs) right and we've got you know and and we're doing okay but we've got a ways to go like the just the inequities in this country that persist um you know they're the greatest indicator that we've still got work to do so these are the education health and just well-being generally if you look at you know rates of incarceration if you look at you know young people in in state care all of those metrics all of the health metrics that you care to find um, all point to massive inequities. And then, of course, there's the seven-year gap in life expectancy between Māori and non-Māori in this country. It's just persisted over time. So at the end of life we're talking yeah. about now, right? Oh, yeah. I didn't yeah. know that existed. Yeah, seven-year gap. Huh. Mm. And a lot could be done right at the beginning of life to obviously shift that metric a little well, bit. Well, absolutely. So much of our well-being depends on 
the quality of healthcare, mm. the quality of life, access to resource, warm and dry housing, all of those things mm. that actually determine whether or not you're more likely to have rheumatoid arthritis at an older age or mm. rheumatic fever, for example. So mm. there are lots of things in your physical health that mm. are definitely determined by the growing up experience mm. you have. And then, of course, there's the biggest thing around mental well-being. Mm. So too many stressors early in life um, can run those yeah. super highways back to your lizard brain, um, which then gets to take over how you live your life, which is not good for that person and not good mm. for the rest of us either. Mm. For sure. You mentioned there about the integration. Maybe that's the wrong word. I, I, I added in that word, so forgive me. Um, but the I suppose the how do we really treat the document, the Teriti Waitangi, thank you, document? How do we make it a living thing, right? Yeah. Which um, what, Practically, what, what needs to happen to make that achievable? Like, well, is think, it institutional? I think it? in the first instance, a whole lot of education. Lots of people don't know what the vision of Teriti was. And mm. I mean... We think about it. I mean, I'm a descendant of a signatory of Te Tiriti o Waitangi. Mm. So my ancestors, Rauri Rangikatsia and Kuia Uruterangi, signed Te Tiriti on the 1st of June in Waiapu, which is on the East Coast. So mm. that was seven generations ago. Wow. So when I think about what they were imagining at mm. the time of signing and the context mm. around that signing, I mean, they were in charge of their universe at mm. that time. They had whole and unfettered power over everything that happened in their living days within their area. So they were responsible to care for themselves and their whānau and hapu, and they were responsible for what happened in their region. So to imagine sharing power mm. with an unknown quantity who has arrived from across the ocean, I mean, logically... If you're going to contemplate sharing power, you're thinking about what the exchange is, right? Because mm. if you understand Māori culture, it's very exchange is massive. Yeah, the, the whole reciprocal nature of give and take mm. um, is embedded into tikanga, as I have been raised to understand it. So, if you think about the exchange, they weren't really thinking about themselves, were they? Because they were unlikely at that point to have lived long enough to reap the benefit of what they thought might be coming. They were okay. really thinking about us. Yeah, mm. They were thinking about the generations ahead and what we would inherit, what opportunities mm. we might inherit as a result of their signing. Mm. So if we're going to understand te tiriti, we have to first understand that it was an agreement between equals. Well, at least my ancestors believed that they were signing as equals. Mm. What we know, of course, about England in that time mm. is that it was rampantly racist mm. and, you know, white supremacy was a, a kind of normal yeah. ideology, right? Mm. And that making a buck appears mm. on reflection to have been more important uh, than, than anything else that we might have been trying to achieve in that time. So th there's a misstep in terms of the intended vision of Tetiriti, which was, I believe, was to generate, a, to hold space for peaceful coexistence mm. between the descendants of the signatories, both parties. We haven't achieved that yet. Mm. 
And I think there's a real opportunity ahead of us to actively design and construct that kind of a future. So mm. I'm excited by the idea, but we're going to have to absolutely end racism if we're going to get anywhere near it. Yeah. Because for as long as we continue to uncritically swallow the idea that all things Western are inherently superior, mm. we're, we're just going to have trouble relating to each other as people. Mm. I think on a human-to-human level, yeah. there's real opportunity. Sure. But uh, if we mm. continue to carry these racist tropes into our future, we really interfere with our kids' right and responsibility mm. to honour the manner of all people. love that description. Mm. Thank you. And I think our, uh, the Western way of doing things has got us into the problems we're in now. Like it's, it's quite clear that mm. climate change, global warming, is, mm. is a product of, of Western models of progress and, yep. and, and exploitation. And builders. Yeah. yeah, so I think it's yeah. the, the, the facts are just easily there. And just in that one case, and probably this also within the sort of pandemic mm. uh, environment as well and mm. so many other spaces. So it's, mm. yeah, it's, I think it's... How do we unpick it? <laughs> you know, that's, yep. that's the question of our time. Many layers, right? Because yeah. you've also got language on top of that. You've yeah. also got cultural approaches uh, to even just discourse. Like capitalist economy, mm. monetary yeah. system, mm-hmm. legal yeah. system, like all of it. It's, you know, it's all tightly intertwined. And we all bring with it different, our own lived experiences yeah. as well as our generational experiences or trauma even. Mm. And isn't uh, the space of the child the best place to address that? Because they come in kind of like, okay, what's going on here? Like, how do we do things? And yeah. they don't take any of that for granted. They're taught. So it's a really exciting yeah, yeah. space because, yeah, you explore the future, as you, mm. you said before, mm. with, um, with uh, our younger generations. And when I hear young people, for example, at the Race Unity speeches, talking about wanting to be a good ancestor... Mm. and oh. actively exploring what that looks like. It's just music to my yeah. ears. It's incredible motivation, isn't it? Yeah. it? I mean, that yeah. captures so much that needs to change. Right. Yeah. And so that's a really good question for all of us to ponder. Mm. What do we intend to do yeah. in order to be a good ancestor, to actually hold space for the generations that come, yeah. and to think about how we put to rights this imbalance that's mm. being created through this mad ideology called racism, mm. probably all the other isms as well. There's a fair few. Quite a few, yeah. Mm. Well, I think you touched on one of, one of the approaches, the idea of being innately human. Mm. And for me, we've got a, a, a kind of duty to just uh, approach your um, idea of being a kid and bringing young people and that mindset they have is almost like a beginner's mindset. Mm. Everything is new, so mm. there's no rules. There's just rules to understand mm. that then break. Mm. But they come at it with a playful sense of kind of ex- curiosity and exploration mm. and an openness to willing to learn but then try something different. Oh, have we thought about and say and ask the probably what we would call silly questions as adults because we think, mm. can't ask that, I should know about that. Like even pronouncing the words for me is really hard because I have a Welsh tongue that does different things that want to go not mm. to a teeth to a T and then an R, mm-hmm. that's hard for me. Mm-hmm. But I'll try it, right? And mm-hmm. I don't mind making mistakes. And kids are like that, mm-hmm. right? They don't mind throwing things out. So the human approach is inbuilt, it's innate in us. Mm-hmm. We just gotta unsocialize ourselves out of 
our expectations of success mm. and failure and just I'm going to approach this with the right intention which is again coming back to your point about that generational thinking being mm. a good ancestor mm. I think that's inbuilt in us once we remove our facades of kind of um, power success which mm. usually is about money let's be honest and power comes from money and mm. worth and from where I'm from class mm. got a lot mm. to do with it um, in terms of our upbringing and literally where we're geolocated in the little isle that was the UK and the empire has fallen apart as I look back uh, with some glee but also some trepidation of what that will bring yeah. potential civil unrest and things like that but yeah we got a kind of we're all here now mm. and we've all got a kind of one eye on the future but as you said as well the education about understanding about how we arrived here mm. is half the battle yeah, 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 the Vagapapa approach. I mean, even mm. for me, thinking about the 40, 42 generations that link me to Maui mm. and then the generations from Maui to Rangi and Papa, I mean, there's an inherent connection to mm. the natural environment here. Mm. So I couldn't escape it if I wanted to because it is so much a part of my DNA. Yeah. So what does that do in terms of my spiritual obligation to be a kaitiaki mm. of this place. Mm. And armed with that kind of knowledge, people can change their behaviour, they can shift their mindsets, they can begin to move in a direction that is, is much more balanced and honouring of the world that we live in. But the challenge remains, how do we unpick Mm. The layers of colonialism that have muddied the waters, pun intended, um, for many people in terms of their access to knowledge and, and ways of thinking about what's possible. Mm. Mm. Indeed. I'm thinking, has that been reflected in any of the performances over the years? You've been doing a 12 years performance arcade, but other things you've probably been involved with. Have you seen a growing sense of what Glennis is describing, this understanding about Whakapapa? And also, I suppose, even performing out some of the, the, mm. the challenges that people have? Um, yeah, I mean, we have had artists like Angela Kilford, whose works, um, she's always investigating Whakapapa in her work. Right. Um, she does these walks, these sort of guided walks, where she talks about the things that are gone in that, in, on that walk, the sort of things you can't see in, in the past, or, okay. and, and brings them back to, you know, back into the, into the here and now. Um, so there are artists who directly explore that and, and find ways of kind of weaving the sort of those fuckabubbers back into our understanding of the present. Um, I think working in, with performance art, um, performance art is so kind of irreverent with the systems it uses, like artists are constantly misusing spaces in their bodies. So it's, it's a very delicate kind of walk when you're dealing with, um, sort of kawa and kopapa mm. to kind of figure out how you... And that's my part of my question about mm. performance art, really, in relationship to um, Aotearoa and Te Ao Māori, is how, how it can kind of operate, mm. or is it useful, or is there something else, is it alternative? Um, and so, uh, I mean, I've, there are artists, like there's um, Tongan artist Kali Solaiti Ihila, who is works with his own culture in an incredibly sort of fluid way, kind of taking practices and 
performing them in a sort of very different way in, in the performance art space to kind of help sort of unpack his own experiences. Mm. Um, and I think we're, we're still, as I said, performance art in New Zealand is still kind of finding, sort of nascent and finding out what it is in that regard. Okay. Because, I mean, another Tongan performance artist, uh, Latai Taumiopul, uh, has a word for what she does. She is a, a funake, a body-centered artist, um, and and she does amazing things like kind of um, tying herself to a block of ice that melts on the Sydney waterfront and stuff. And, and there's incredible performance in a glass tank where she's doing a traditional Tongan dance in um, her sort of traditional garments, but also it. Um, she's wearing a life jacket on top. And there's this water that's in the tank that she's dancing with, and it's an incredible kind of um, emotional. Well, for me, it engages with the whole challenges of the water level rising in yeah. the Pacific, and a gotcha. lot of communities yeah. across the Pacific and their challenges, and and trying to also um, develop, sustain, maintain, and grow their their cultures in this threatened context. Um, and so, yeah, I think. In Aotearoa, I'm just trying to find mm. um, what our response is to that kind of that context a bit. Um, it's fascinating yeah. that you're open to that as well, because even to, for you to describe it as a nascent emerging, mm. I suppose, discipline. Yeah. You know, just because of the amount of people that live here as well, you've got a small market for anything. Yeah. Uh, but just to be honest, around the idea that it's, in a, you know, it's a discipline that's evolving still. Mm. Um, and not many other industries would call itself that. So I love the beginner's mindset. Again, we're coming back to that yeah. idea of being fluid and open yeah. uh, to what the medium needs, I suppose, or the people that bring to it. Yeah. You're working on a couple of works at the moment. I saw in one of your write-ups, but you might have done it. So I don't know how up-to-date it is. Yeah. So I, the, the two new works was Ecology in Fifths and Streets yeah. of Gold. Done them yet or...? Actually, um, Streets of Gold I did a test in Cardiff a long time ago, um, but that's a bit of a large-scale project, which cool. I may or may not happen. Ecology in Fifths, yeah, we just did a season about just over a year ago, okay. um, and this is yeah, really about the... It's a, a dance performance piece about the landscape of Aotearoa, right. um, about the, the, the sort of Pākehā settler kind of experience and it's based on a book by H. Guthrie Smith about Tutira, which is up, mm. up um, yeah. I, I'm from um, Havelock North, so up, ah, up, up, yeah. up our corner of um, yeah. Aotearoa and it's this book which is very big and he says at the beginning, please read this from the beginning to the end, otherwise it won't make sense and the reason why is he starts off writing the book pretty much when he arrives at this, this, um, this piece of land that he bought as a settler from Scotland um, probably couldn't own his own land in in Scotland, so yeah. quite excited about this. And f- over the process of writing this, over because he's sort of impassioned enough to document all the wildlife, um, to document the stories of the Tangata Whenua there, um, Nati Kurumakihi, and over that process he realises what's happening and by the end he's lamenting the sort of damage that's done to wow. the New Zealand landscape. Mm. Um, 
and his responsibility. And so now Tutira has a sort of a training centre for young farmers and and has a lot of kind of regrowth happening and there's an arboretum and stuff. Um, and that sort of, that change of heart I find really interesting and and trying to sort of come to terms with the legacy of of your ancestry as a, as a Pākehā. I mean, I arrived here on my own boat much later on, but um, I sort of want to tap into this experience that a lot mm. of New Zealand, Pākehā New Zealand have. And so it's this piece about that. It's a very sort of, it's a, I call it a pastoral tragedy. It's this piece that mm. just starts in that clipped green New Zealand landscape. We roll out all this turf, like 49 square metres of it on stage, and we just look at what that means, what that piece of grass is, and right. dig into it, and things come out of the soil. And um, I was really w- lucky to work last year with some fantastic uh, dancers and choreographers to bring it to life. So mm. Sean McDonald, who's Nati Kangunu, so from that area, did the choreography with me. And, um, and yeah, we had f- four incredible dancers. Sean also danced in it as well. And... Um, really explore the sort of the tragedies and the stories buried underneath this grass that is the sort of colonial idea of New Zealand, this theatrical curtain which was just rolled out over the landscape and turned it into an image of England. Yeah. And what's been the response of that when people in the audience see, you know, things coming out and are they feeling challenged? Are they feeling uncomfortable? Do you see that shift in the seats of people going, oh, yeah, now I get it? It starts very pretty and sort of dainty, almost like a garden party. Like, right. And then this Crow tree... on the lawn, darling. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then this tree disappears into the grass. This, um, this indigenous tree just disappears. It's pulled right. and just leaving its leaves, and someone comes with a leaf blower and blows them away. So there's a sadness which is replayed, sometimes yeah. almost comic, but then it gets sadder and kind mm. of and more charged. Um, so I think I'm always... Yeah, I, I love the idea of theatre being a room that changes, that it starts somewhere and mm. then we end up somewhere else. And I think, yeah, it's, it is very haunting by the end. And yeah. I find audience take a while to kind of soak that kind of experience in before they're ready mm. to kind of... Reflecting on it then. Yeah. yeah. So there's usually a sort of quite a pause at the end of those shows where people are just... Because yeah. it builds up. The energy becomes really quite strident and, mm, and powerful. Yeah. But it's an experiment. Like I did a development season of that in 2010 and it was very different then. And it is now, and I think when I do it again, because there's a theatre in New York which is keen to show it, then we'll have to engage with um, Manahata people there and, and really try and find a way that it speaks to the experience of, mm. um, of Native and settler Americans in a yeah. way which helps them kind of experience that sadness. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it'll keep... It's like the arcade. It's this experiment with, you know, what what is it to sort of carry that history of violence towards the land and its people yeah. and how how can we kind of acknowledge that and and um and embrace the the need to heal and mm. and move forward love that thank mm. you what a great description i'm getting mm. you had me at the grass rolling <laughs> <laughs> right that's quite a powerful way to you know set the scene i think mm. but mm. i do believe that if we are to really lean into our history and understand it, make Mm. peace with it, Mm. that the arts is the only way through, I think. 
we've tried for years to drag it out in court. We've, you know, we've we've written mm. all the words under the sun about this. But what I'm learning more and more um, is that the arts represents a unique pathway to the heart of the human, right? Um, and when you engage in a creative experience, mm. you get to hold your mana intact mm. while you experience whatever it is that's playing out in front of you. And then the conversations you have after that experience are also in your wheelhouse. You get to actually discern and determine and reflect and do all of that really mm. important so-called soft work. Mm. I mean, anyone who's done it, there's nothing soft about it. <laughs> mm, yeah. um, coming to terms with um, settler histories across mm. the world is painful and difficult for all parties. Mm. But there's something really, really important about speaking to the heart while actually uh, taking on uh, the more cerebral aspects, mm. I mm. think. People are more open. Um, people are more willing to engage in a mind shift if we're actually working through that creative realm. It doesn't mm. feel as confronting. It doesn't, um, you know smack people in the face quite so mm. in, in such a full-on way mm. if they are able to get that arm's length from it and observe um, what they think they know actually being presented to them in a different way. Mm. I think it's a really powerful medium to start this process of coming to terms with the truth of our history, reconciling ourselves with it and thinking about what justice in the future looks like yeah. in this country. It's, it's a really huge, huge role to play. It's disarming, isn't it, I think? Yeah. Um, yeah, you're not sure. You don't know you've been spoken to always through the art. Mm. Yeah, good point. I worked a lot with a sleep scientist and the way she described how dreams impact our kind of... how, how we deal with problems and things... Mm. It, I just related to so much of that as an artist, like the, the things that the brain does to itself in order to dream are so similar to what the the public do to themselves when they go to theatre or to art. Mm. They suspend a certain kind of judgment mm. Mm. Yep. Um, and they're emotional. You know, there's so much sort of physiological things that happen that yeah. disarm us and make us open to this new experience, this new way, and you don't know... And, 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 but you still, as you say, keep your mana intact. Mm. But you still know who you are in that place. And you come out of that and those images or experiences will maybe haunt you in the same way like a dream. Like that thing happened in my dream and I don't... Mm. It and, felt so real, but... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I don't know what it means. And you keep picking away at it and eventually it might just solve a problem. Yeah. Um, and dreams are where we solve problems. Mm. Um, that's a lot of the sleep scientists talk about that. Mm. And I think art does a similar thing for our society. It's where we solve mm. our... We, it's our conscience, it's our subconscious, and we solve our problems through it eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there needs to be more additive but safe additive ex explorations mm. um, of the soul, shall I say, in terms of like artistic experiences or even things that aren't listed artistic but could be in, in those realms, like even going to a, a conference uh, or going just experiencing around someone's house, then playing a new piece of music for you, something that takes you out of yourself a little bit, that's surprising, but then revealing and asks you a different question in a different way. 
rather than a pointy finger. This is just a different thing being asked of you. Mm. They can connect new neural pathways, mm. which I think is the sleeping thing. It just reconnects latent, dormant it's, pathways. It's all children there. again, too. Mm. Yeah, all kind of wide-eyed. Yeah. yeah. Surprise well, particularly in this information age, too, I find that those creative works that have a firm research underpinning or ha- or work off the basis of a moment in time or a particular historical mm. or contemporary fact are mm. even more powerful because when mm. you leave that experience yeah. you get on your phone you can look it up yeah you know and yeah. you can extend your learning or you can chase down other aspects to the story that perhaps you know weren't concluded in the performance you know it mm, gives you right, yeah. it's like a little portal to a a world of information that you didn't understand even existed, and that's quite common for lots of people beginning to explore our, you know, yeah. our national history. Revelationary, right? Absolutely. Kind of un- unpeels that onion. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I'm conscious of time, mm-hmm. but I also want to conscious of I've been doing this a lot and asking: Is there anything you guys want to ask or inquire about? Anybody around this table? Mm-hmm. Show you up. <laughs> I, I'm, Thank you. yeah, I'm fascinated by the, the role of the child in our country's future. I mean, I just had a baby about three and a half months ago, so it's suddenly this kind of um, world has shifted a lot. Um, yeah, it seems it seems to be a part of our country's. Like so many of our films have children in them doing things, and. Um, and they seem to be such important parts of our storytelling. Mm. Uh, you know, some of you know, we've had children win Oscars as well. Mm. And so I'm, I'm just really um, interested in what you think, um, what, yeah, what, what's going to happen in that space in the next kind of 10, 15 years as those children that um, move out of the space that you're you know, sort of advocating for and into into um into society making their own art forms and mm. and works mm. um is it do you think there's i mean we've spoken quite a bit at the beginning about some some of the issues they're interested in do you think mm. there's some what else is happening in the in the future you think from your explorations and i'm i'm seeing lots of creative brilliance mm. coming from young people and children across this country as you mm. alluded to I've been following um, a group called Kahal, mm. um, who've been working with Rob Ruha. They created that um, amazing hit, 35, mm. which is this ode to the generously state highway 35 right. that runs through the East Coast mm. um, from Gisborne around to Aportiki. Mm. So it takes you around the East Coast, which mm. is a very remote part of our country. But these kids in this choir um, named Carl grew up um, along that highway and they know the nooks and crannies of their community very, very well Mm. and they are grounded in who they are um, Mm. as young Māori people and they sing their hearts out uh, to the things that matter most to them. Mm. And so I've been watching their career grow and develop and I've seen them... um, you know, take TikTok by storm. Yeah, <laughs> I've never seen so many people from all walks of life, from all around the globe, 
emulating um, kapahaka before, mm. ever. I don't think there's ever been a platform to give people the opportunity to do that. Mm, and for that to be welcomed uh, warmly in the way that it has by this group of young people. Mm. I mean, the creative was theirs to imagine and mm. it was supported by the supporting adults. Mm. And it's a really great model, I think, for supporting young people to, to find their voice. For as many as there are young people living with terrible conditions of poverty and hardship mm. and struggle, undiagnosed and unmet health needs mm. uh, and all of the gambit too, there are these little bright spots of opportunity where by some incredible force of community power, these young people have grown up secure in their identity, secure in their communities, secure in their real, mm-hmm. secure in their absolute right to determine their future for themselves. And so we're seeing these young people flourishing, particularly in the creative realm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me is a really exciting mm-hmm. little bright spot on our horizon. And I know there are more. There are young people making films down in Ōtaki with Māori land. There are young people doing all kinds of incredible things. So I want to try and understand how we get this group here moving towards this group here. In fact, how do we mash them and mix them up? How do we create the conditions that give rise to this beautiful creative brilliance yeah, that we're seeing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Connect them all up. So that's that's the future that I see is actually if we keep an eye on the bright spots mm. and continue to work away at the structural and social conditions that create harm mm. and look to mitigate those. I mean, the future looks bright. Mm. It's incredible. Love that response. Mm. What about your world? What's the future looking like? In the performance, in performance space. art, yeah. Um, I mean, it's very challenged at the moment because of COVID. Performance sure, art is yeah. about body sharing space. You yeah. know, it's about all these mucky things that happen between bodies. And the, the last performance arcade before COVID was such a. We had um, people putting these masks, these uh, sort of this digital mask on, which you know was a sort of a technological thing, but it was also about you know. F- um, bodies sharing space and we had mm. this co- company from Korea that performed in these glass tanks um, with members of the refugee community and the audience are eventually invited into the tanks as well so it was about sharing this liquid space stuff that just can't happen now yeah. it's because this it's and and it's changing our habits as well like you know whether we hongi or not when we go to a marae and and how we interact socially um, and how do we as performance artists kind of help keep us aware of the things we might be losing because of that or the challenges that that creates and how we can explore that because we all want to connect physically and yeah. and, and be expressive and not have these sort of boundaries between us and, and, and um, performance art really thrives in that space of, of sort of interaction. Yeah. So it's a challenge time. Um, I mean, we're lucky with the Performance Arcade because it's on the waterfront and so much fresh air with all this salt fresh air mm. coming across. And the sort of 
the sporadic nature of audiences, they can sort of drop by and be like, you know, just an audience of one in front of a container. We can do this safely, but for performance art and especially theatre and dance, um, which rely on large audiences and stuff, or if you want to just get a bit closer to our audiences, mm. we've got to find a way to stay in touch with each other. Yeah. Um, because we can only do so many Zoom performances before it starts. Totally, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all agree. We're like, yeah. 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I think it's in a space of quite rich sort of um, crisis. It, rich crisis. Yeah. Oh, what a great <laughs> yeah. pairing of words. Well, it is. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, like, of course. To, yeah, reimagining, right? Yeah. And using it as a creative opportunity. Yeah. I mean, this work that a community made with themselves within their own bubble yeah. um, to put on TikTok suddenly reached so many people. Mm. The embodied kind of um, performances of people from balconies of locked down cities in Italy. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, there's ways that people resist the sort of their confinement, but also stay safe as well, yeah. which I think. So we'll, I mean, we'll we'll find something interesting and we'll work it out. But yeah. it's 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 um it's certainly an, it is in crisis, but it's also a very rich time. And arts always thrive in this space where suddenly there's constraints are around it, and it has to creatively kind mm. of um, find a, a solution. Yeah, it's a great pairing. I love it. Rich crisis. <laughs> I'm going to take. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> so steal like never, an artist. You should never waste one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sure you could utilise it in some of the th- Ooh, discussions yeah. you're having coming up. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, your stories, your openness to do this. Did we cover off everything? I think so, yeah. Within the time allowed. We went quite around the mulberry bush, didn't we? Yeah. Went deep, <laughs> but we went good. Yeah. We went hard. Yeah. We went good. Thank you. Thank you. That was creative. Welly, episode 26. Thank you for lending us your attention. Big shout out to John O'Tucker from Empire Films again, the video producer of this audio podcast, and also David Hamilton from Flashdog Studios, who hosts us to create this beautiful podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe via creativewelly.com. Lots of subscription avenues there, and keep having courageous conversations with bold humans.